Welcome to this edition of Gabrielle Dolan's Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle as she speaks to well-known leaders on authentic leadership values and storytelling. The aim of this podcast is to encourage you to embrace authenticity in both the professional and personal context. The stories and experience of her guests will be a wonderful catalyst for others to learn from. Welcome to this episode of Authentic Leadership and I am I am really excited, I'm beyond excited to be talking to Warwick Fairfax and uh, that name may be very, very familiar for my Australian audiences because of Fairfax Media and if you think if there's any relation between Warwick Fairfax and Fairfax Media, there is because Warwick Fairfax was the man at age 26 who took over Fairfax Media after the death of his father. And we're going to spend some time talking about his amazing career. So welcome, Warwick. Thank you, Gabrielle. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to start off with a quick fire, fun questions because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're going to get deep into your story. Yeah. Um, so where did you grow up? Obviously in Australia. I did. Well, I grew up uh, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney in Double Bay, which for those who are not from Sydney is kind of you know, the most exclusive uh, part of Sydney. I don't know if that is equivalent to Turak in Melbourne or somewhere, but it's, it's kind of it's uh, up there. So we lived in a beautiful house uh, on the water, Fairwater. Um, so, I mean, I had a very privileged upbringing. Um, yeah, it was it was a um, beautiful part of Sydney and um, yeah, a nice place to live. Mm. Now, now we're they're detecting a bit of an American accent at the moment. So um, <laughs> <laughs> where are you living now? Well, we live in, in my wife's American who I'd actually met in, in Australia, funnily enough. So uh, we've lived in the US since the early nineties. And for most of the year, we live in Annapolis, Maryland, which is about 45 minutes outside of Washington, DC. So I've lived here a long time. So I went to college in England. So my accent's a bit of a mix of Australian, English, American, a, a bit of everything. <laughs> a bit of everything. Enough to fit in nowhere. <laughs> exactly. If, yeah, people here definitely know that I'm not from the US. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, interestingly, I'm going to ask you what was your first job? So I'm assuming you had a job before you took over Fairfax. I did. So uh, kind of the first, well, first internship I had, uh, I worked at J. Walter Thompson, which way back when was one of the larger advertising agencies around. And there was probably some relationship between uh, them and uh, Fairfax Media. So, you know, it wasn't that hard to, for that to be organized. So that was sort of my first internship. And I really enjoyed marketing strategy and I was in a group that worked on uh, the Kellogg's account. So, you know, uh, cornflakes, rice bubbles, which of course don't exist in America. It's Rice Krispies here. I think it's very amusing. Rice bubbles, what's that? But anyway, another story. But yeah, that was my first internship. And after college, I worked in a, a bank on Wall Street, Chase Manhattan Bank, my first real job. But yeah, J. Walter Thompson in Sydney, that was a very fun first work experience. Mm. And so when did you start working for Fairfax? Well, um, so uh, did my, that was sort of would have been in 1987. So I did my undergrad at Oxford, like my dad and some other relatives. Worked on Wall Street at Chase Manhattan to get financial experience, did a Harvard MBA, 
having finished that, then I came back and um, yeah, it was sort of a wild experience because yes, I was trying to get my feet wet and learn the business. But at the same time, I was sort of planning a, a takeover. So it wasn't your normal first few months on the job. Normally when you're on the job, you're not thinking of taking the company up. That's most people don't start that way. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty ahead of your time. Well, what was, what was, um, Oh, I guess, why were you thinking that from that early age? What was, would, did you see that the company wasn't going in the direction? Was it a relationship issues with your family or what was it? Yeah, thing? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I was very young at the time, uh, 26, again, right out of business school. So uh, as often happens in family businesses, there were friction in the family going back a you know, number of decades before uh, I launched the takeover. Um, so that was sort of one aspect that was a sense from my parents. They didn't feel like the company was being well managed, maybe not run along the ideals of the founder. And it doesn't matter so much whether that was true. I mean, the point is that's what I felt was true. One can debate uh, whether that was true. And certainly, even if it was true, you could argue that the cure was worse than the disease. Certainly what I did didn't make things better. Objectively, it makes made things more unstable. But that was kind of, that was my impetus. And um, yeah, it's a long story, but there was, you know, some management um, capital raising schemes. And, you know, we tried to um, be part of the, um, I suppose, feeding frenzy with Herald and Weekly Times, you know, Melbourne Herald being, you know, the anchor uh, paper and so we sort of left it a bit late and ended up getting a TV station in Melbourne, uh, but ended up having to sell it pretty much immediately because we already owned the age and you, you couldn't own the age um, and a TV station at the same time. So it was, you know, one could debate all this, but the, the big picture was just a sense of that things weren't going in the right direction and needed to be changed. And whether I was the one to do it at that age, whether there were better ways, I've thought a lot about, but, but that's really the answer. That's that's what I thought at the time in my youth and naivety. Yeah, and you were at that age in your late twenties when we all think we know it all. <laughs> well, and and my dad had died earlier that year in January '87, so you know, stock market that, price of the company yeah. went up. So the the market felt the company was in play. Uh, so there's all sorts of things going on that kind of uh, fed into that. Mm. Did your father die? Was it suddenly, or did, or did he well? You know, he was. I was by his third marriage, so he was in his late eighties when he died. He was eighty-six, so uh, he had you know prostate cancer. But um, you know, back then, I don't. There wasn't as many early detection, you know, uh, as there is now. So other than that, he was in great health. But it's just one of those things. Yeah. So you. So after he passed away, that's when you came into the company and and started felt like something needed to be done and um, yeah, launched the 2 billion plus takeover in uh, August 87. And yeah, that's kind of what had happened and things pretty much went wrong from day one. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a disaster from beginning to start, I have to say. Was, was there a moment, like having, like looking back now, you can say that was, was there a moment? Was there a moment where you thought, oh God, maybe this is not the right thing? Um, you know, I was so focused on what needed to be done, but, um, you know, certainly once the rest of the family sold out, which is understandable, they don't want to be in a company controlled by a 26 year old, 
the October 87 stock market crash happened, which really hurt our asset sale program. So by the end of 87, we had an unsustainable level of debt, which would require the economy to just go lights out for, for years. So when Australia got in the big recession in 1990, we had no margin for error and you know, the company went under. But yeah, I mean, um, at the time I was so focused on getting the job done that I don't think I was thinking about, is this the right thing to do? It was more, something needs to be done. You know, I need to do something, almost a bit of that uh, heroic leadership model, uh, which, you know, is often not the right path. Mm. You know, because you don't, you don't, you're not always the one to do it, and you're not always, you don't always have all of the answers and the full perspective. I had my parents' perspective; I didn't necessarily have a broader perspective. So, many lessons learned, but yeah, I was pretty focused on getting the job done. Yeah, yeah. Did it cause um, tension between the your siblings? Absolutely. I mean, they couldn't understand why they thought it was unnecessary, but absolutely, especially the ones who were involved in the family business. Um, yeah, and are they sold out? And obviously, financially, you know, uh, I guess it was at the height of the market, but that's fine. But it did definitely cause uh, friction within the family, and there had been friction, but this made it certainly worse. You know, <laughs> why did you do it? I mean, it's like they couldn't really understand it, mm. and I don't blame them. I understand why they felt hurt. I, I totally get it. Did the like now, like years on, is the relationship resolved with your? Yeah, I mean, pretty pretty much. I mean, my older brother uh, James passed away uh, a couple of years or so ago, but yeah, I mean, I think pretty much. You know, we see each other at family gatherings, and I'm not naive enough to think that people think, "Oh no, it's all fine." I mean, you know, scars do last in people's feelings, but I think by and large, you know, we try to all be friendly to each other, and there's some perspective, but do some think it was necessary? No, I'm sure they don't. You know, do I think it was the best approach, even if my analysis was right? No, it probably wasn't, you know. Uh, but no, I mean, by and large, I mean, considering what ha the cataclysm that happened, I guess, you know, it's not too bad considering in terms of relations. A normal family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in some sense, yes. Yeah. <laughs> who would you think, who would you say was your biggest influence in those early, you know, growing up in those early career days? You know, probably uh, my dad. Uh, I mean, I had a, an amazing mother who was certainly a huge influence, larger than life. And that would be a whole nother story about, about my mother. But um, yeah, certainly in terms of, of the family business and who he was, I guess, um, you know, he was had the same name as me, but he was knighted. So he was Sawarak Fairfax. He was in fact very unusual because obviously in Australia, we don't have hereditary titles, at least. There's only one person I know that did, that was Sir Rupert Clark. You know, a Melbourne fixture died a number of years ago, but other than him, is almost unheard of. But in my family, there were three knights in a row. My dad, you know, his dad, Sir James, and Sir James Redding, very unusual to have three in their own right. So I say that because um, I guess my dad is somebody that I admired. One of the reasons why this gets back into the earlier question about what led up to the takeover. In 1976, some other family members threw my dad out as chairman. Now one could debate about whether that was a good or bad move and depends on your perspective. As a 15 year old kid, he loved his dad deeply. Obviously, I didn't think that was such a good idea. And so, um, I guess why I admired him because as best he could, 
he really tried to forgive those other members of the family that had done that. And, you know, there's a spiritual heritage within my family. Um, and, you know, my dad said, well, that's, you know, I need to forgive because that's what God would want me to do. And I don't say that it was perfect because it's a tough thing to perfectly forgive something like that. But I just admired his character. And look, he wasn't perfect, married three times, and you have to make some mistakes to have that to happen, right? It's typically not one person's fault, you know, that's both typically. But he was somebody that, um, he had a title and all, but he was somebody that was noble in his character too. Like, obviously, we were wealthy, so we had lots of staff. And everybody that worked for him, they just admired who he was. So it wasn't perfect, but I just admired his character and his intellect and his, um, uh, he, he was somebody that had his political opinions. He was probably conservative, I'd say, moderately conservative. But he would dialogue with anybody. One of his good friends was Bob Hawke, funnily enough. Back when Bob Hawke was leader of the trade unions. Before, I mean, at the time, Bob Hawke was pretty left-wing. But yet it didn't bother my father because he, you know, he respected people's right to have their, a different opinion. And so that sense of intellectual honesty and respect for other people's perspectives. And there was a lot to admire about him. Wasn't perfect, who of us are, but there was a lot to admire. Mm. Do you think um, that hurt you felt as a 15-year-old boy when he was um, booted off the board had anything to do? Like, you know, I'm not saying revenging my father's death or anything. Sure. Do you think it had something to play with the takeover? I think it's possible. It wasn't a conscious thing at the time. I felt like something needed to be done because of, you know, where the company was headed and certainly some management decisions that were made in particular. But yeah, I mean, subconsciously maybe, mm. but it wasn't a conscious thing. So, you know, it's uh, certainly possible in hindsight. Tell me what you learned from your mum, because you, you, your eyes really lit up when you spoke about your mum. Well, you know, it's so funny. I think we're often a combination of both. My dad was this philosophical, reflective person. It would have been a great university professor of philosophy. I mean, that would have been perfect for him. You know, loved philosophy, you know, religion, and a sense of a, from an intellectual perspective. My mum, on the other hand, and my dad was reserved, shy, if you will. My mother was you know, very outgoing, a huge amount of perseverance, never gave up. I mean, uh, she was just almost a force of nature, just very dynamic person. In the 70s, when I was growing up, she had these incredible parties. She'd throw a party for 300 like it was nothing, you know. You know, she'd have different tables, like, you know, the chameleon table or the, you know, whatever it was. She'd have wandering, you know, musicians playing Italian, you know, music kind of thing. And those parties were so amazing that, you know, prime ministers, ambassadors, even people from Hollywood, you know, Liberace, Kirk Douglas, they would, you know, tell their friends from Hollywood, you know, if you really want to go to a great party in Sydney, look up, you know, Mary Fairfax. Because it's almost like they will experience something that even for them that they weren't used to, mm. you know? How old, were so you? There was, How old were you when these parties were going on? And uh, you know, maybe 10, 12, 13, just, uh, you know, early teenage years. So, um, yeah, I mean, my mother's great strengths was just a sense of perseverance, very passionate, very committed, never gave up. So, um, yeah, I mean, she had a lot of qualities to admire and she was just like a, a mag. She had this, such this incredible personality. She would just draw people to her. 
uh, she was um, she was quite uh, the a force of nature really comes to mind. She was just quite something, a remarkable, highly intelligent, driven, outgoing, vivacious, an amazing, amazing person. Mm. Well, it sounds like if you can pull genes from those two, <laughs> no. you've got a good yeah, gene. Exactly right. Well said. <laughs> did you love the parties and did you have any idea of the, you know, I guess the caliber of the people and celebrities in the room at the time? You know, I don't know that I did. And, and this is not a criticism of my mother or my parents, but when you have people at the upper reaches of society, money, status, yeah, and this is my perspective, which could be wrong. I think authenticity is not always a hallmark of, you know, you don't think of Hollywood as a place for, you know, authenticity, you know? Um, and so it's just, there's just the pressure to sort of to be who others want you to be. And so from an early age, you know, it's funny you have a podcast on authenticity, but it's one of my highest values of authenticity because I want to be exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. Putting on airs so that other people will like you I mean, it's never something I've wanted to do because I, I saw that. And again, it's not a criticism of my parents, but, you know, people like that are often, they're not trying to be uh, authentic per se. I mean, it's just, it's more, what do I need to, who do I need to be? What do I need to be to be successful? You know, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I sort of more got a reverse sort of lesson. And I, I, I didn't really love it per se because I like real and genuine and I didn't see, well, I, I would have liked to see more, let's put it that way, than I did. But you could put, you could put somebody in any wealthy society back on any corner of the globe. I think you would see a similar thing, at least from my perspective. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the biggest challenge in your career, but was, that <laughs> the, big, was the biggest challenge that whole thing we've talked about from, you know? <laughs> well, it, it was, it was obviously the whole takeover, but probably the biggest challenge was, um, a struggle, a yearn for authenticity, because my whole life, uh, that authenticity, I valued it, but it's not something that affected how I lived in this sense, that the idea of, okay, most people grow up thinking, what was it, what is it I enjoy? What do I want to do at school or, you know, university or what have you? Who am I? What am I passionate about? At least in an ideal world, that's what you're thinking. I was thinking more, well, it's my duty to one day be in a leading position in the family company. That was certainly my parents' desire. And so it was, who do I need to be? What training do I need to fulfill that role? So Oxford, you know, Wall Street, Harvard Business School. It wasn't that I have this passion about business. I don't know that I do per se in the narrow sense of the word. I mean, I'm fascinated by people and but that's different. So finance, I know a fair amount about finance. It kind of bores me, you know, I'm on a couple of nonprofit boards or I you know, have been on them. And I'd, I just stayed away from the finance committee. Not that I couldn't contribute. It just doesn't interest me, you know? And so it was all about what do I, who do I need to be and what training do I need rather than what is it that I enjoy? So you know, the whole losing the 150-year-old family business on my watch, that was a massive crucible and a huge challenge. But probably the bigger challenge was the 90s afterwards trying to figure out, well, who is Warwick Fairfax? Who am I? What is it I enjoy? What are my passions? Am I even allowed to be who I am? Am I allowed to kind of try to do, find something I'm good at? Is there anything I'm good at? So it was, 
yeah, that sort of uh, struggle for authenticity to be who I am and who I'm designed to be, that was probably the biggest single challenge, certainly in the wake of the aftermath of the takeover. Yeah, yeah, that would be, I mean, I guess, like you said, you've spent your whole career knowing this is my job to, you know, be, take over the business at some stage and then that happened and then it wasn't and that challenge of go, what do I do now? How do you think your leadership has changed throughout your life? Like, it sounds like you, this authentic leadership has always been strong to you from the very start, but how has your leadership evolved over the decades? Well, certainly my vision. I mean, originally it was, gosh, you know, I'm going to be in this leading position and I want to be in a position to, you know, I mean, when you're in a media company, as listeners in Australia would know that, you know, have like the Sydney Morning Carol, The Age, Financial Review, television stations are leading publications and media. There's a sense, well, somehow I can be a part of an organization that contributes to the well-being of a country. I mean, I've, I've always been an altruistic, idealistic kind of person and fortunately still am. I mean, altruism can be misplaced and take you in the wrong direction. But, um, but now it's like, well, it's not about changing you know, a whole country or not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's, you know, which we'll get into later, I'm, I'm sure, but with Crystal Leadership, just helping individual leaders and people and telling stories of coming back from setback. It's, it doesn't have to be this big, you know, change the world vision. It's not like, you know, be prime minister or bust or, you know, uh, be the leader of a fortune 500 company or, you know, uh, BHP or AMP industry. It's not, it doesn't have to be, gosh, if I'm not leading something massive, I'm a failure. It's not, it's, I, I guess I've got a different perspective of my own leadership. And, and, and for me, which is another subject, I want to be who I'm designed to be. I want to utilize my skills and it's okay to be me. Mm-hmm. And so I want to lead in light of, that's probably the biggest single lesson is I want to lead in light of who I am and what I do. I want to be reinforce my strengths there's a lot of things i'm not good at i don't want to do things that amplify my weaknesses i mean it's you surround yourself with other people to do that but you recruit do something in which you're guaranteed to fail right it's like gosh gee somebody's saying gee i'm not athletic but let me go you know uh try to you know uh, win an olympic gold medal for a hundred hundred meter sprint well why set that up as your goal if you're slow physically and unathletic i mean that's just silly Yes, I always say recruit for your weaknesses. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So you talk you talk a bit about um, crucible moments. Um, So tell me tell me a little bit about more about that and how common are they? You know, I mean, obviously mine is pretty obvious and very public. Uh, Not everybody's worst day is. on Wikipedia or, you know, on Google, yeah, it's, mine it's, is. But, you know, it's, um, it's very impressive you've got a Wikipedia page, but you're probably going, yeah, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're not, you shouldn't be, you don't think of yourself as defined by Google or, um, or, or Wikipedia. But Christopher Leadership is really about um, bouncing back from failure or setbacks. In my case, it was failure and not all of it, certainly a lot of it was my fault, but it could be physical challenges, uh, emotional challenges, uh, losing a business, uh, losing a loved one. And often, sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's not your fault, but you're faced with a choice. Even if it's not your fault, how do you move on? You can hide under the covers of, of your bed and say, life's over, I'm just giving up, I'm checking out and I'll pass one day. 
and the pain will stop. But, or do you say this was awful and it was my fault, not my fault, but how do I use my pain for a purpose to use a phrase that others have coined? How do I learn the lessons of my crucible? How do I use my crucible to help others? What I call the life of significance. And one thing I've found is, as I've tried to use some of my own pain and mistakes I've made to help others, there is a healing component of it. There's always a scar when you go through a crucible, you know, one has to be realistic, but when you're using what you've been through to help others, um, it makes a big difference. So that's kind of what I do with my writing and blog, and I'll have a book coming out next year on crucible leadership, uh, podcast with different people and different stories. So, yeah, Warwick, I was going to ask you, so you, you do have a podcast and um, I'd imagine it's a, uh, in the book as well, where you interview a whole lot of people that have had crucible moments and obviously they've dealt with them differently and come out of it differently. Has, um, I mean, this probably is in the book, but is there, is, there, is there some common themes that you see that when people come out of it and come out of it well, what, what's, is there common um, you know, mindset or what they do? What, what is that? Yeah, I think there's, um, it's really a question of, uh, of choice. I mean, there's so many stories. I think of one woman, Michelle Quay, who grew up in Taiwan and at a young age, 10 years old, she was uh, crossing the street from a school and was hit by a truck and was pretty much permanently disabled. She'd never grew more than that. So she's about four foot something and she walks with two crutches and it took her years to overcome not, not the, the physical challenge, I don't know that that really got that much better, but emotionally feeling like I'm not good enough, pretty enough. I'm not who I thought I was going to be. And like many crucibles, it took a long time. But yet now when you know, I've interviewed her and she has her own podcast, she is one of the most joyful uh, people that I know. How is it possible to be joyful? Well, she's made a choice over many years that I'm not going to be defined by, in this case, this physical setback. So it's really, yeah, and that's one of the starkest cases because she is one of the most joyful people on the planet and mm. life is not easy. She goes to the grocery store, she can't reach the top shelves. You know, it's just, she's got, you either got to tip it over with a, one of her canes or ask somebody to help. And that's just, for most of us, it's, it's going to the grocery store, it's not a big challenge. It's just, you do it and you get what you need to do. So I think the commonalities are just, a choice to not let your worst day define yourself. I had another fellow who was a person who was a Navy SEAL, his father was a Navy SEAL, and he was paralyzed in a, uh, a training accident, you know? And so his dream of being a Navy SEAL was gone. Well, he had to adjust his whole life. His dad had to get over that. You know, his dad said, you know, objectively, my son could have been one of the best there is of Navy SEALs. That may not be true, but I don't think his dad would say that if it wasn't true. So how do you get over when your, your dreams are shattered? And there's nothing, you know, you've got to make a choice. This was awful. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but you just make a decision. I'm not going to let it define me. And somehow I'm going to get over it. And typically, as in the case of this Navy SEAL, he runs a, a clinic for vets in uh, San Diego, California, where he helps them get as much mobility as they can with, you know, some, some of the latest equipment and technology. And so that gives him an outlet for his passion. So yeah, I don't know if that helps or 
<laughs> so it sounds like, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like a, ch- a choice, but I'm obviously there's a lot of things yeah. up into making, making that choice. Well, it, it, I mean, it's a, it is a choice, but I think you have to be realistic that getting through that pain, some, the physical part is often something we can't solve, but just the emotional one. I mean, it took me most of the nineties to really get through it, to find something I could do without screwing up and um, my sense of self-worth. I'm, faith for me uh, in Christ is, is a huge thing for me, but even with that, it was tough. So I don't at all underestimate the challenge of coming back from significant setbacks and crucibles. There'll always be a scar, but just to get where you think you're somewhat functional, it can take years, even with, you know, uh, therapy with uh you know counseling finding things you can do or you do all of the things you need to it's it even if you say it's a choice it's a tough tough road it does not take years typically how long so currently now you're writing and you're blogging and podcasts and you've got a book coming out helping people i guess giving them insights to this how long have you been doing this well it's funny um that's another story of perseverance, which certainly my mother had, and hopefully I think I have a bit of. So I've done different things, you know, I worked in an aviation services company doing business analysis, different things. I've uh, done a lot of executive coaching. I'm a certified executive coach, uh, which I love asking questions. So that I'm curious if that was a good fit, but I guess probably a turning point um, for me was probably, um, you know, maybe 2008, thereabouts. Um, I was uh, in the non-denominational church we go to um, in Maryland. The pastor asked me to give a message on, oh, I don't know, on my story. Somehow it was amplifying some sermon um, that he was giving. And it was just seven, eight minutes. And I'm not a particularly good speaker. I'm sort of reserved by nature. And nobody knows anything about Fairfax media in, in the U.S. I mean, just think of you know, Australia, Harbour Bridge, kangaroos, you know, koalas. I mean, you know, sort of the image, you know, which is fine. Uh, but um, I knew nothing about Sydney Morning Herald or The Age or anything. But somehow by being open and vulnerable about my challenges and mistakes I'd made and since it was a church, maybe the lessons I thought God had taught me or I'd learned. Somehow, weeks and months after, people came up to me and said, you know, Warwick, thanks for sharing that because that really helped me. I thought, well, how could this help anybody else? I don't know that there were any other ex-media moguls in the congregation that I know of. But somehow, when you're vulnerable about what you've been through and give people some hope, so that was the genesis of I need to write a book. So I started writing, and I mean, it was sort of years in the process, and then a few years ago, it's like, gosh, I need more than a book, or more than a manuscript. You need, you know, blogs and podcasts to get publishers interested. They want to see a whole spectrum that of hopefully fans, uh, followers that will buy the book. So it was years in the making. So the fact that I started writing this thing in 2008, and it's like 12 years later, it's, it was not e- an easy thing, you know, not an easy journey. Uh, I often get asked, how long does it take to write a book? And it was like, uh, it's a bit like labor. <laughs> Depends when you start counting. <laughs> when Just when you think you... Yeah. When, when's the book come out? You said next year. Uh, next year. Yeah. So I've got a publisher and so uh, we're in the final rounds of editing and um, yeah, there's just the constant editing and refining and um, yeah, it's, it's not an easy process, but definitely, uh, definitely worthwhile. So that's, yeah, that's, that's been 
A labor of love, I guess. Yeah, it is a labor of love. I've, um, I've just actually sent my sixth book to the publisher. And I wow, you're, you're doing well. People ask me, uh, you're thinking of writing another book, and you say, are you kidding me? No, you, you, <laughs> uh, you six, that's just, impressive. You just, your podcast, you could just have volume, volume two, volume three of all the people you Oh, that's to. true. That's a good the idea. The amount of editing, <laughs> the amount of editing, I'll say, and thank goodness because you know if it if my first draft went off anywhere I, I wouldn't be onto my sixth book i can tell you that right now it is a it's a long hard process isn't it do you, do you, did you ever hit that time i always i always hit this time when i'm writing a book going why did i decide to do this it's just too hard did you hit that or well, did you know part of it was um it took years to write I me mean, you know what well the, the one reason it took a long time to write is imagine when you're writing about some of the dumbest, stupidest mistakes you've ever made, but you're writing about it in exhaustive detail. I could write for a couple hours a day and say, I'm done. I need a break to recover from the trauma of the experience. You often don't want to relive those, but I forced myself to, because I felt like if it can help people, that was the big shift. There was a mind, mindset shift. If it can help people, then it's worth it. Now, I mean, because it's years later, you know, it's not not painful, but it's, it's vastly less painful than it was when I started writing. So that was tough. The other tough thing is initially I had this thought, well, maybe it could be published in Australia. You know, it was a big deal. And, you know, as I talked to some different publishers, some wanted more of the sensationalist book and it's anchored by my story, but it's more of stories about leadership from my life and my family, some historical, some inspirational faith leaders. So it's really a collection of stories around certain leadership principles of, you know, vision, character, perseverance, different things. But, you know, I was not going to write a book that, you know, this is other people. So people that know my story well, they know who the other members of the family were, but I don't get into, well, so-and-so did this. And I think A and B about so-and-so. There's none of that. I talk about other family members and pretty much most of the focus is on, this is what I did. Don't do what I did. I'm not, I'm not really at all focusing for the large part on other people's. I'm going to talk about what my perceptions were of management at the time. And, but even there, I said, that was my perception. Doesn't mean that was true. It was mm. my perception. So all that's to say is um, it's now going to be published by a U.S. publisher. But uh, yeah, I mean, it would, I mean, that, and that was another few years after that. But, you know, life's a journey and... Um, uh, so I'm happy where I am and, you know, I get it. You know, everybody has to do what they want to do, but I was not going to write a tell all book because that's not who I am. And I just don't think that's productive. It's not part of my value system, I yeah. suppose. Um, and now I know why the, the editing process would be so much harder for you. If it was hard <laughs> to write about the dumbest things you've done in your life, you have to reread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex exactly. So, uh, yeah, it was an uh... interesting process. Um, we, we'll put uh, we'll put the details of um, the book and the podcast so people can link into the podcast. I'm going to link into that. It sounds amazing. Some of the people you've been talking to. Um, slight change attack. We're we're in we're smack bang in the middle of a global pandemic. What what's been a silver lining for you out of uh, this pandemic we're in? Well, it's funny. You know, I have three kids in their twenties. One, you know, works for a, you know, engineering company in Maryland. Another, um, just about to, st uh, well, I have a son, daughter, son, my daughter, is about to go to grad school in Chicago. She actually worked in Australia for two years for a, a large kind of um, nonprofit, funnily enough, because all my kids are dual citizens, so they can 
go back and forth. Malgus Hung just graduated from college. So normally they'd all be off doing, you know, their own lives, but they've spent the last few months with this. And so to have three kids in their 20s, being able to have them around the dinner table every evening, that's a blessing, which, you know, I just, I'm blessed to have, you know, I'm sad how it happened, but that's the silver lining for me is having my three kids all with me when normally they, they wouldn't be, not at their age. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's a silver lining for, well, for most people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people are sick of their kids. I mean, if you, if you have really small kids at home and you're trying to yeah. get something done, you might love your kids, but th- I, that's got to be a challenge. I do feel yeah. for people with kids at that yeah, age. Um, yeah. Some of the biggest challenges with the clients I see who are working full time with small children. I'm, I'm very glad myself, my children are at an age where they're not coming in asking me anything about homework. <laughs> 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 with one child doing chemistry in, uh, you know, final years of school, she's not asking mum for any help with her homework. <laughs> <laughs> she's actually doing oh, yeah. business management and she doesn't even ask me help for about that, which I'm a little bit annoyed. Anyway. <laughs> hey, tell me, tell me some of the things that you love doing when you're not, when you're not writing about your stupid mistakes and interviewing people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something I actually enjoy doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I love being with my family, but uh, you know, we're at the moment in the summer in far Northern Michigan, which is pretty isolated. A lot of, you know, trees and forests and what have you. So, you know, I love kind of hiking. I'm nothing too strenuous, but walking in nature, um, just being with my family, kayaking. So um, there's something about the tranquility of nature, you know, just uh, yeah, just the thing we all love, just hearing the, the breeze of the trees and just, I don't know, it just, it, you can't help but get tranquil and scented when you're in nature, at least for me. I just, I love tranquility. Uh, so yeah (laughs) excellent excellent um if you could change one thing about you what would it be do you think well you know it's it's funny um obviously i'm a reserved person i don't there's probably a time in which i wish i wasn't quite so reserved but people don't realize this about me because i have a high degree of self-control but i'm basically an impatient person but I keep it well hidden. So it's not that obvious. My family knows. I was going to say, your family. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm impatient. And like your typical dad, you know, when you're going on the big uh, summer holiday thing, it's like your hours pass when you're going to leave or let's stop for a five minute rest stop. And it's 45 minutes, you know, typical dad is like, how long can it take? Come on. But I mean, every dad's like that, that I know of. It's just part of, part of the genes, I suppose. But um, no, I mean, whether it's crystal leadership or anything, I tend to want to get things done yesterday. But yet, because of my self-control, there's sort of this internal battle, which is like, fine, but do you want to do it right or do it quickly? And I tend to, because I'm also a perfectionist, like that's, that's a challenge that, um, it's funny, I just, uh, I'm, I'm sending out a blog soon and a, and a podcast, and a, some, one, some of the podcasts we do is just me and a co-host talking about something, but we're not interviewing others. So yeah, perfectionism is something I definitely battle. Uh, but I guess impatience would be number one and perfectionism, do a good job, but don't beat yourself up for every micro mistake would be number two. Mm. Come to think of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck with trying to get things sorted. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty tough to yeah. change wiring. 
do you have a favorite quote? I love quotes. I always want to ask people, do you have your favorite quote and why? You know, it's funny. You would think given faith is so important to me, there's a lot of good biblical ones, but there's one uh, by Gandhi that I think a lot of people's favorite quote is, be the change you want to see in the world. Mm. And there's something about that that I, uh, that I love. It's easy to try to say, well, everybody else needs to be fixed, our political leaders, our and there's a lot of things that need to be fixed in the world, I think most of us would admit. But rather than complaining about everybody else, you know, be that change, be that person. Doesn't mean that you have to change the whole world, but you know, to the degree it lines up with who you are, your passions, your wiring, your design, you know, quit whinging and complaining about everything else, but um, be that change. So uh, it's funny, I use the word whinging. Obviously, as you know, that's an Australian word that nobody uses. And as I tell people in America, you know, whinging is, is, is the next level worse than whining. Whining is one thing, whinging is worse. <laughs> so. Do you still find yourself have to explain some Australian terms to people? All the time, you know, and how I pronounce things, you know, it'll be like garage, massage, and it's like, dad, you know, it's massage and, you know, it's like, it, yeah, so I still pronounce things from their perspective the wrong way. And um, I mean, I've lived here long enough that I try to make sure I say things like, um, you know, hit it out of the park rather than hit it for sex. Or, you know, I mean, there are some obvious things that I wouldn't make a mistake of, you know. The, the, uh, the real test, I think, do you say process or process? Uh, gosh, I probably, I, I don't even know which is the right one. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> Americans say process. And I, I would probably say, tend to say process and uh, project or I don't know. I probably go back and forth. You, on you probably like flip. That. You probably flip. Yeah, I do. I get, I get confused. So, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another question I like to ask people because I'm really into um, the unnecessary use of corporate jargon. Now, you might not come across a lot of corporate jargon in your current role, but is there some corporate jargon phrase you absolutely hate and you, you could ban? It's it? funny. You know, I know there's a lot of ones, whether it's right sizing, downsizing, you know, let's circle back. But I don't tend to be worried about it. It doesn't really worry me. I mean, there are some that when you say, well, you know, you've been laid off because we need to right size. I mean, I don't know that the word bothers me, but the concept, it just feels a bit disingenuous. I mean, just say, look, you know, uh, we made some poor market decisions. The economy ha hammered us and we've got to sack 20% of the workforce. And I'm very sorry, but, you know, you're the one we picked. You know, just be straight about it. But don't say we've got a right size. If I had to pick one, it would probably be right size. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> and I totally agree with you, Warwick. I think that's what started my just just say it just say it as it is because we're normally trying to hide something and and that's a classic example when we were right sizing or um latest one is we're reallocating we're reallocating people <laughs> we're reallocating them to the job queue the unemployment queue that's where you're exactly we're, we're, yeah we're, we're reallocating you to the doll and, yeah. <laughs> uh, congratulations <laughs> but it sounds so much nicer so exactly. yeah I think, um, I think that's my worst jargon is when people use it to actually just hide the truth Hey, I'm going to, this has been fabulous talking to you. Or we could talk, I could keep talking to you for ages and maybe we'll <laughs> do another one when your book comes out. Um, but I'm going to end with a few quick questions that sure. you like to um, ask people. What is the one meal you love cooking? If in fact you do cook. 
the one meal. Well, see, that's a funny story because I didn't really cook. I mean, I grew up in this wealthy background. We had cooks. My mother was a good cook, but she supervised. But uh, I have one funny story is back in the late 80s uh, when I was living in Neutral Bay, which is lower North Shore in Sydney, living with a few guys and uh, first moved in there. And each of us had to take turns in cooking. So first night I was there, this guy cooked this fabulous Chinese meal, one of the best Chinese meals I've ever had. It's like, this is a bunch of guys. Is this the standard? Are you kidding me? So me and my stupidity and naivety, which doesn't only, you know, it's not just about takeovers, it's about smaller things in life. I decided, gee, what are one of the foods that I liked growing up in Eastern suburbs of Sydney where there are fabulous restaurants? Feel masala. That's how hard can it be? Well, it was meant to be served at seven. It was 8.30 before it got there because you have to, you know, reduction sauce, put it on the pan, take it off, put it on, take it off. There's like 85 steps. Little did I know, but I thought, well, it's, you know, it's a piece of veal or masala wine. How hard can it be? Well, it was monstrously hard. So yeah, maybe that scarred me for life. And fortunately, my wife is a fantastic cook, but uh, yeah, yeah, not so much these days, I'm afraid. Oh, I love about that story that you chose veal masala. So it, <laughs> and masala, I mean, who cooks with masala? Yeah, sort of, uh, you know, don't go for just, uh, you know, you steak, just steak on the barbie or anything. You could have just, just done something. I'm going to cook a classic Australian and do, you know, <laughs> No, bangers and no. that. <laughs> no, I had to, you know, go big or go home, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're right. It, it, it's the same approach to multi mega takeovers or just. Exactly. There you go. Maybe there's a link. Go hard and go home. <laughs> Um, you could do it. your next book maybe is cooking lessons from Warren. <laughs> yeah. That would be a, that would be a real crucible experience, wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> and for that, the uh, that would be the, a pretty small yeah. book too, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll send you some ad assets with 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 the book. <laughs> um, favorite eighties artist or song? Well, you know, it, it's funny. I kind of grew up more in the 60s and 70s. So I was, you know, that's a... You can flick to that if you want. That's a challenge. And, you know, this is sort of, I mean, I like the usual, you know, obviously, um, you know, Neil Diamond, John Denver and all that. But, you know, obviously thinking of Australia, definitely, you know, living Newton-John and back in the 60s, the Seekers were fantastic. I have to confess, it was not cool at the time in the 70s. I was a big ABBA fan, you know wasn't cool on the playground but as you may know abba was more popular in australia than any country in the world other than sweden yeah it was yeah. it was massive in the 70s so uh yeah i mean nothing too i'm not into heavy metal or anything like that so yeah yeah I so it's you, you know <laughs> you can't go wrong being an abba fan i mean no, i didn't think so yeah, I will go with Abba. That's Abba. That's a that's a cool one. And final final question from me um, to to roll to bring us out is if you could give one piece of advice to your twenty year old self, or maybe in your case your twenty five year old self, right? <laughs> what would that be? You know, I mean, I know the title of your podcast is authenticity, but it's really, you know, be who you are. Don't try to be who your parents are or you know, boss, co-workers, teachers, not that there's anything wrong with any of those people and they'd be wonderful people, but be who you are, be your true self, you know, lead a life that's founded in your inherent wiring that do something you're passionate about that, you know, back when I was growing up, it'd be like, well, you have some choices. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, maybe a stockbroker and 
you know, be I'm also being practical, but you know, if you want to paint, be a violinist or, you know, an athlete or build homes or whatever it is you want to do, it's not wrong. You know, there are maybe economic consequences, but do what you love, be who you are. That's probably my biggest message to really anybody. And certainly to me, uh, just be who you are. You know, there's nothing wrong with nothing wrong with that. You know, mm -hmm. do what you love. Sounds yeah. simple, but many of us spend our lives doing what other people want us to do in areas where we're not really gifted at. Mm. You know? I remember when the kids would always, you know, be choosing their subjects for especially their final years of school. My advice was just do what you like doing. Just do what you like. Don't worry about where it will lead. Just do what you like. And that's what I've told all of my three kids, mm. you know, do what you enjoy doing. I don't, I don't care where you end up. I want you to be happy. And yes, there are consequences, but do what you love. I mean, that's, you know, um, I didn't want them to feel pressured at all. I definitely felt nobody's fault exactly a fair amount of pressure you know, to live a certain role, be a certain role. So I really tried not to do that with my kids, you know, for obvious reasons. Mm. Are you proud of them? Oh, absolutely. They're both very different. They're both each, all three of them are both very different, very unique. And um, it was fun having my daughter work in Australia for a couple of years. She worked for Mission Australia, a huge nonprofit. And uh, that was kind of fun. She actually has uh, the distinction of being, of having voted in two different countries. She got to vote in Australia because she's an Australian citizen and she gets to vote in the U.S. Un unfortunately in the U.S., they don't have sausage sizzle, sizzles at the polling booths. This is the, <laughs> this is the reason why people don't vote in America. Exactly. This is, you could bring this. If they only had sausage sizzles at polling booths. That could be the next book, Sausage Sizzle. sizzle. You know, <laughs> the cure for, I don't know about American politics, but at least American yeah. voting participation. Yeah, well, there, there could be some more parallels between is it all sausage or all sizzle with um, there you go. politics. Well said. Excellent. Warwick, thank you so much. Um, as I said before, we'll put the links to the podcast because I'm sure my listeners will be very interested in the podcast and um, I look forward to reading the book when it comes out next year. Thank you so much for being part of it. And um, I wish you all the best on your crusade, I guess, at helping, helping people get through those crucible moments, regardless of, of how big or small they are. So thank you for being part of it. Well, thanks so much, Gabrielle. Great to be here. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast in the Authentic Leadership series. Visit the resource library on Gabrielle's website to access a collection of free material on business storytelling and thought leadership.